listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Today we're going to conclude our Let's Talk About series with a talk on racism. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the beginning of our Declaration of Independence, penned by Thomas Jefferson, 17. 76. Yet even as the ink of this document was still wet, before the first revolutionary shot was fired, these words were not true for thousands of Americans brought to this land against their will. It would not ever be true for most of them and it would remain untrue for all of them for another 180 years. And some will argue with good defense that it is still not completely true in the 244 years of the American existence. If we consider 1776 to 2020, we're close enough to 2020 to call it there, right? We're, we're close enough. That's 244 years of American existence. 89 of those 244 years, slavery was completely legal all the way up until 1865 when the 13th Amendment to our Constitution abolished slavery. But for another 89 years, slavery was illegal, but discrimination and segregation were not. Until 1954, Brown versus Board of Education determined that segregation was no longer legal. But then there followed another 14 years when segregation was illegal, but was still the norm in most states, especially in the South. That 14 years was concluded in 1968, April the 4th. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. 244 years of total existence, 192 of the 244 are marked by racial injustice. That 78% of the American existence marked by racial injustice. But now let's be fair. Let's be fair. Really, does the American story start on July the 4th, 1776? No. Now, our history books tell us that the American story, in fact, started in 1620 with the arrival of those that we will celebrate in just a couple of weeks, that group we call Pilgrims. So if we go from 2020 all the way back to 1620, then we would say that our national existence exceeds 244 years and looks more like 400 years. If we take those same date parameters and we follow our country's existence back to the pilgrims and 1620, 
Well, then things get a little bit more daunting for us Americans. Because with those dates, 236 years of our 400 were marked by legal slavery. Still 89. Slavery is illegal, but discrimination and segregation are not. Still 14 years of normal segregation after segregation was deemed illegal. That means that if we follow our nation's existence back to the pilgrims, then 339 of our 400 years were marked and defined by racial injustice. And that, my friends, is not 78% of our existence, but rather 85% of our American existence marked by racial injustice, segregation, and discrimination. Many of those under the banner that all men are created equal. I think we would argue that with the efforts of Martin Luther King Jr. and those who fought with him, those, I say, let me back up. I I shouldn't say it that way. They didn't fight. Those who stood with him under the umbrella of nonviolent um nonviolent protest. We could argue that much progress has been made, especially since his assassination in 1968. If you were alive and you were able to tune in your television in 1968, raise your hand. So many of you know what it looked and felt like to be an American, possibly in the South through the 60s. Many would argue that we've seen great progress, and I would agree that we've seen great progress since the late 1960s in many ways. That, I think, could be measured and, and tangible through evidence. But racism prejudice and discrimination is still very much alive in America. Individual racism exists in America. It's when a person's beliefs, attitudes, and actions are based on a bias, stereotype, or prejudice against another race. Individual racism exists in our world today. It's alive and it's well. If you don't believe me, then you don't have an account on Facebook. Cultural racism is still alive and well. Cultural racism is when one culture considers its own better than another. That's cultural racism. Let me give you an example. As a Caucasian, I find that when I am in my neighborhood with our friends and neighbors, now that doesn't count last weekend when the teenagers were over, okay? So that doesn't count. But generally speaking, the white culture wants to make sure that our celebration does not extend to the neighbor's house. But that's part of our culture. Sit down and be quiet. While there are other cultures in our nation whose celebration is marked by volume and exuberant celebration, but how many times are the police called? Because they are being too loud. That's cultural racism. That's saying that your expression is somehow infringing on 
my right to not have to hear it. That's cultural racism. One culture is seen and understood. And cultural racism is when one culture marks the whole as responsible of coming under the umbrella. My culture is that that you can have your culture as long as my culture is the dominant one. That's cultural racism. That is alive and well in the United States today. And then we have systematic or institutional racism. And this one is so enormous. It's really a a very complicated reality. And I'm going to do my best to define that. And I've had some help to try to uh, to define it. Systematic racism, institutional racism. This is the social privilege that, I'm sorry, this is the practice of social and political institutions reflected in disparities regarding wealth, income, criminal justice, employment, housing, health care, political power, and education, among other factors. Here's what systematic racism is in layman's terms. It's when there are rules that say one thing across the board. There are rules, there are laws, there are factors that must be maintained in a, in a documentary format. However, within the local, within the state, within the federal, within the business institutions, there are realities that while Verbally or, or written, we are following the guidelines, but there are practices within those guidelines that disparage one group against another. So that everything can be documented to the T, but the reality is for one, some things are more true than for another within the systems that exist in our nation. That's what is, is, is what is defining when the term systematic racism is mentioned to the best of my ability to define that, which leads to another concept that many within the white community have bristled at hearing. And that is the concept of white privilege. You've heard white privilege. And probably you have a definition in your mind of what that means if you are white. Then you have probably in your mind what that means when you hear white privilege. You probably think that that means because you're white, you live a privileged life. And most of the time when white people hear privileged life, it has to do with what is in our wallet, in our bank account, or in our 401k. But that's actually not what white privilege means. Again, a complicated issue that I'll do my best to define. White privilege is the societal privilege that benefits white people over non-white people, particularly if they are otherwise under the same social, political, or economic circumstances. When we're all driving down the same streets, living in the same county, working at the same place, shopping at the same stores, this is a societal privilege that benefits whites over non-whites. White privilege denotes both obvious and less obvious passive advantages that white people may not recognize they have. You may not recognize if you fall under the umbrella of Caucasian, you might not realize you have privileges that aren't necessarily extended to other races. 
you may not recognize that you have, which distinguishes it from overt bias or prejudice. You can have white privilege and be fighting hard tooth and nail against overt racism. You can have a zero tolerance policy for overt racism and still be the beneficiary of white privilege. These include, first, the cultural affirmation of one's own worth, the privilege of being seen in society and on face value, judging the book by its cover. He seems to be a pretty good guy. I assume he's a pretty good guy. That's first and foremost. Then a presumed greater social status, the the presumption that you're probably further along in life than others that might be viewed, and we're in the same line, we're in the same Walmart. The presumption of greater social status, and this is the big one, the freedom to move by work, play, and speak freely. Let me give you a real-life example of what white privilege would be referred to. When I get in my automobile and I go out driving at night, I try not to drive at night because I really want to sit on the couch and fall asleep. But if there are times that I need to be on the road at night, and if there were by chance a blue light to come up behind me, of course, they're red and blue in Florida. In Georgia, they're blue. That's where I learned the, my fear of tickets when they were all blue in uh, Georgia State Patrol. But if I find flashing neon lights behind me, I can tell you that I have never had the thought this could be an abusive situation. Never. In fact, Anytime I've ever seen a law enforcement officer, I've always thought of them as there to protect and serve. I see them and I immediately feel more safe because they're there. I think about them and I look at them and a lot of times I'll catch eyes with them. How you doing, man? You know, and I expect them regardless of their color to look back at me and go, I'm doing great. How are you? Because I've done nothing wrong. And what I have to worry about. And I assume that that's the way everyone sees law enforcement because they're there to protect and serve. That's what their badge says. That's what their car says. That's what they held their right hand and promised to do. But that's not how everybody sees law enforcement. That's not how everybody feels when the lights come on behind them. Why? Because experience has created a fear. Experience has created a concern. Experience has created the need for fathers of color to have discussions with their children about driving that I've never had with my children and would never have thought to have with my children. That is by default a privilege that I have and don't even realize I have it. So when I hear the term white privilege, I've decided... I'm not going to get mad at that because it's not about anything I've brought to the table. It's about the reality that it's more than 339 years of our 400 years of existence where things aren't exactly equal. Racism and racial injustice in all its forms, is and has always been evil and unacceptable sin. I'm going to say it one more time because I want to make sure that you know exactly where I and Oasis Church stands. And if, if this is something that is contrary to your held philosophy oh i would love to work with you to see that sin expelled from your life 
but I want you to understand who you're hanging with. Racism and racial injustice in all of its forms is and has always been evil, unacceptable, and sin. I lived as basically a racist until 1995. And I'm ashamed of that. I grew up in a state that was marked and still quite very much marked by racism, bias, by prejudice, we's and they's, us and them. Can I tell you that I knew all the jokes? I could tell them. I knew how to look at people. I stood behind that Confederate flag for a number of ignorant, sinful, evil years of my life in my mind. And I'm ashamed of that. I wish that were not true. Folks have photos of me before murals of things that I wish they didn't have. But that's the reality of my life until February the 1st, 1995. Because there was a whole lot more going on wrong in my life than just a racial mindset. It was a whole lot more. And by God's grace and the work of his Holy Spirit, he convicted me of many more things than just that. On February the 1st of 1995, I was so far away from God that when I recognized his draw in my life, I felt like I had never been saved. That was how far away from God I was. And I knelt down at the coffee table that we bought from the Salvation Army in the house that me and my two buddies were renting all by myself, walked into that room, got down on my knees, and I said, God, I'm a mess. And I'm a liar. And I'm a hypocrite. And folks don't know the real me. The folks closest to me didn't know the real me. God, I, I don't want to be who I am no more. That was so powerful for me. That was so transforming for me. I went back home to Georgia and I told my mom and dad, I, I really think that I got saved tonight. Called the girl that I was engaged to and said, Honey, I, I, I really think that I came to know Jesus tonight. Now, and that, that was the date that I held to for a number of years, February 1st, 1995. God changed me that night. And God gave me a new desire. Now, can I tell you this? If I let myself fall back into my old ways, I can think. I can even feel myself move in that direction. But I can tell you this, February the 1st, 1995, God changed my heart and gave me a new desire. By God's grace, I have a zero tolerance policy for guys like I used to be because I know better, because God changed me. Now, I'll fast forward a little bit. Uh, Stacy and I and Rhett, we moved to Dallas, Texas to go to seminary, and I got to studying the doctrine of salvation. And through that study of the doctrine of salvation, I came to the conclusion that I really do think I was saved at five because I never believed anything different about Jesus than I did when I was five years old. But here's what I tell you I did. I walked away from him, and I went to the pig pen just like that prodigal. And on February the 1st, 1995, God said, are you going to stay there? And by his grace, I said, not if you'll let me come home. And he did. And so by God's grace, since 1995, I've been a different man. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that what I'm preaching is not above me because that was me. But that ain't me no more. And by God's grace, 
I'm going to see to it that we are a body that pursues God's plan for the races, which, in fact, I would argue is only one race. Everything else is man-made. There's one race. There's one blood, and it's a human race. Now, equality and, and, and unity are to characterize God's people. All of those things, individual racism, cultural racism, systemic institutional racism, they exist in our nation. And you know what? As a church, we need to stand against those things. We need to be vocal. We need to be very blunt about where we stand and about the equality of all those created in the image of God. And guess what? The palette of colors is broad and they're all the same. And we need to stand up against that because God created this body of followers of Jesus Christ to reflect equality and unity. That's our mission as a church. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to experience equality and unity, then we are going to have to recognize that as racism exists in our world, so too it exists in the church. And that's what I want to spend the next few minutes walking through the scriptures and coming to a brand new understanding of where we are to stand and how we are to think when it comes to those who don't look exactly like me. We're going to start with 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. And if any of that information that you just heard was interesting to you, then it's that and there's a copy right there. You can have it on your way out the door. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 verses 14 through 21 talks about the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was risen. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, say it with me, class, new creation. Thank God. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has, uh, was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If the races are going to truly be equal in America, it's going to require what many in the civil rights movement in the modern day call racial reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the exchange of the hostility for a friendly relationship. It is the Hatfields and the McCoys coming together and one being willing to put out his hand and the other being willing to put out his hand and say, how about let's not feud anymore. Let's be neighbors. That is reconciliation. And it goes beyond just the hand. It's the decision to see one another differently with the commitment to never going back to the way it was. When God reconciled us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that means he took us from being his enemy 
who deserved death, who deserved separation from him. And God, on his own initiative, exchanged that hostile relationship for a friendly one. We went when by faith we trust Jesus... As our Lord and Savior, we go from being God's enemy to God's child because God decides by his grace to reconcile us to him. We don't reconcile ourselves. He reconciles us through his initiative, and that initiative's name is Jesus, God the Son, who paid for what makes us God's enemy through his own life blood. And when we by faith trust that one, God changes that hostility for friendly family relationships. And now Paul says God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, obviously that means we're given the gospel. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Please be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone through his death and resurrection alone. So that you might experience the reconciliation that comes from God through Christ by faith. But there's more. That ministry of reconciliation is not only vertical, it is horizontal. If the church is ever going to be a beacon of reconciliation between brothers and sisters in our nation, then it must have the reality of reconciliation within its own existence. Because racism is alive and well in the church, reconciliation is needed in the church. And guess what? God has provided the reconciliation in his son through his death and by his grace that we might not only be reconciled to him, but reconciled to each other. As reconciled children, we are in Christ and therefore we are new creations. See, I'm not what I was before 1995. I'm a new creation because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all evil, wickedness, and unacceptable sin. I'm different than what I was by God's grace. I'm reconciled to him. I'm in Christ. And we, the reconciled, have been given reconciliation to promote in the name of Jesus. It gets better. We look to Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 13 through 22. We we find out that it gets even more specific in this area. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus... You, now Paul is talking to Gentiles, and and, and in the early church, the population of the world was seen for at least those that were presenting Christ as, as Lord and Savior. It was divided into two categories. There was Jews, and there was everybody else. And there was a great division between Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul is saying now, he says, Christ has brought you who were once far off, talking about Gentiles, they were away from him because they were part of Gentiles and not the Jewish population, has brought near you who were once far off by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. What kind of peace The peace between the hostility between Gentile and Jew. We bring it into our culture between black and white, between Puerto Rican and Mexican, between any divided community that has that hostile relationship. For he himself is our peace who has made us both or made us all one and what has he done he has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility. Anybody remember when President Reagan made that famous speech in Western Berlin where he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Why? Because Germany should not be two. They should be one. And in March of 1990, I had the privilege of actually standing in eastern or western Germany with a hammer and a chisel, and I chipped away a big old hunk of that Berlin Wall that had not been bulldozed quite yet, but had big gaping holes that I could stick my head in and see the eastern side as I pulled back and saw the western side. Jesus, in his death, tore down the dividing wall of hostility between peoples between Jews and Gentiles that were diametrically opposed to one another Jesus says in my death I bring that down I'm making one out of many because I tear down that wall of hostility verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making what, class? Peace. True, lasting, real peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body. Get this. Racism exists in the church, but it is contrary to the family of God. Because in being reconciled to God, God assumes our reconciliation to one another. And when that isn't a reality, guess who we have snubbed? It's not our neighbor. It's our creator. Because he's tore it down. And in his tearing down, he's taken two and made one. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby, what? Killing the hostility. What has Jesus done to the concept of racism, he has put it to death. Jesus has executed in no uncertain terms racism. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no more longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints with the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built What's that next word, class? Together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, God Almighty lives in you. If you know Jesus as your Savior, God Almighty lives in me because I know Jesus as my Savior. But you know what? God doesn't want to be an isolated God walking around in a bunch of self-contained temples. God's design is that that common denominator that I have in the Holy Spirit that is the same that Charles has at the Holy Spirit, God's desire is that Charles and I lock arms as equal brothers without hindrance, without hostility, recognizing that it is God who has taken what was once broken and restored it by his love, mercy, and grace. And to say, I'll just hang over here with this color of bricks ain't never going to work with the contractor who's doing the building. Does that make sense? All right. The cross brings an end to human hostility with each other. But is it not true that the walls that Christ broke down have been 
rebuilt. See, I, I expect it to be rebuilt by the world because the world doesn't recognize it was ever even torn down. But God forbid our hands ever have the dust of rebuilding the walls of hostility between peoples because that's contrary to the gospel. In the cross, we who were created as one human race but separated by sin are united or reunited as one body, one building built together where his spirit is to dwell and to work. That's going to require true unity. And that's what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. We see verse, first in verse number 11, the second half of verse number 11, where Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them. He's praying for the apostles that are there with him. This is the night before his crucifixion. And he's praying, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. God desires that the people he redeems reflect the unity that is seen in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uniquely different, yet in complete and perfect love and unity making up not three gods, but one God in three persons. And God's desire for the church is not that we be an isolated church here, an isolated community here, an isolated culture there, but that we be all together, unified together, one body, one spirit, one baptism, one faith. We skip down to verse number 20 of that same passage, and here's what Jesus says. As he continues the prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only. Excellent. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. If at any point in your life you have heard the truth that Jesus loves you and died to save you and rose again to secure your salvation. If you've ever put your faith and trust in those words, say amen. amen. Then you are one who has believed because of their word. So Jesus is praying for me and you. Here's what he says. I pray that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given uh, to me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prayed for the unity, for unity to be the reality in the church. Jesus prayed that unity in the church would point the lost to himself so that they too may be reconciled to the Father and then to one another. 
Jesus prayed and defined that unity in the church is sourced in God's love for us and produces God's love in us. You see, when Jesus was praying for the church, he says, now, Father, I need you to bring them together because they're not cut out for it. They'll divide. They'll see differences in one another. But, Father, I'm praying that through me, they will see themselves as one. Just as we are one and just as I am in them, that they may see one another as I see them. And when they are unified, not divided by any hostile walls of division, when the world sees that, then the world that is divided will say, why are you different? And we will be able to point them to Jesus. Does that make sense? So Jesus prays for unity. Jesus broke down the walls of hostility. And then Jesus gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God to man and man to each other. But because racism exists in the church, because it is alive and well, we've got to expose it. Ephesians chapter number 5, verse number 8 through 14 says... For at one time, you, he's talking to believers, at one time, you were darkness. You were apart from God. You were steeped in sin. You were his enemy. You had nothing in yourself to bring to the table whatsoever. You were once darkness. But now, because of your faith in Jesus, because of the transformational work of God, now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then verse number 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. How does racism exist in the church? Racism exists in the church in the form of individual hatred, prejudice, discrimination that is practiced and tolerated. You know who you are if you're motivated by prejudice and racism. If you know who you are, then you know what has to be done. That has to be confessed. That has to be repented of. That has to be killed in your life by the blood of Christ. Because as long as it exists in your heart, then it is keeping you from being a minister of reconciliation, both between men and God and men with each other. Racism should never be tolerated in any body of believers. And it won't be tolerated here. But again, by that I don't mean with a cattle prod I'm zapping you out the door as much as it will be, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, Kevin. Um, man, that, that can't, man, that can't be real in this body. We got to work on it. Well, let's talk about it. Let's pray about this. Let me, let me walk with you. Let's, let's get together regularly and let's pray about it. Let's go through these scriptures again and let's bring this before the Lord because that thing's got to be killed. And you know who can kill it in your heart? You know who has the power to destroy that thinking that might be, have been in you for years and decades? You know who can get it out? The same one who died in your place and for your sin. But it begins with 
Lord, I'm a racist. And I know that is not consistent with you. Remove this from me, whatever it takes. Racism exists in the church through intentional or desired segregation by denomination or individual churches. Churches that have decided that they are going to be a white church. They are going to be a black church. They are going to be a Hispanic church. Whatever that is, and I'm not referring to language differences. I get that. That makes sense. We need to be able to understand, but that also should be brought with the spirit of unity. I would love for our church, Oasis Church, to have a Spanish ministry. I've just not had anyone who is capable of doing that to cross my path yet. But I'm telling you, church, when that happens, I'm going to look toward that because that's pursuing unity across cultural lines. But there are churches that intend on being and not welcoming others. Racism exists in the church when diversity is accepted Okay, our church is going to allow folks that look different than us to come in. That's, we're going to accept it, but we're not going to passionately pursue it. See, now we're getting to where we live. We are not going to be a white church. That's not going to be who I am ever. But is it possible that Oasis Church can be a church that accepts diversity but does not pursue it with passion? You better believe it can be. And that starts with me. But that involves you. May we be passionate about looking into this audience. You see how many seats we got available? What if every one of those seats were full and and there was a a large portion of these seats that were filled by, by cultures and nationalities that aren't even present today? How cool would that be? It would look a lot like that crowd that was before the throne from every nation, tribe, and color, singing and praising the Lamb. You say, well, that sounds interesting. Well, guess what? That's your destiny if you know Jesus as Savior. Your color not going to get you no primo seating It's going to lump you in with the mix and you're going to be proud to be there. So why should we not want a church that looks like that? I want one. May we never be one that accepts diversity and not passionately pursue it. Racial, racism exists when racial and cultural insensitivity exists. We can be someone who is is clearly anti-racism but be an absolute dummy when it comes to racial sensitivity not thinking about what we're saying use things like well do you people what are you people what are you you people what what people are we we can just be real idiots in the way we talk sometimes and may god teach us how to get beyond that May God teach us how to be sensitive. May God teach us how to be concerned when something happens in our world that we don't understand and, and, and we don't get why there's an upheaval and there's an anger and there's, you know, there's a, we don't get it, but may we be concerned why some of our brothers are feeling that way and ask questions and quit deciding what truth is because well, it's because I know what truth is. Let us be concerned. Let us be sensitive. Because quite frankly, that's what we want from others in our own life, do we not? Racism exists when boundaries to involvement and service exist. What's that look like? Well, it looks like when leadership is something that people of color or a particular color are not welcome in. Uh, we're, we want to be a multicolored church, but when it comes to leadership, well, you know, you got to kind of what? That's racism. That's prejudice. When there are participation limitations. 
Well, you know, man, but when folks bring the babies to the, and you go, Pastor Kevin, did you just say that? Yeah, I did. You know why? Because that kind of stuff is said in the church. That's racism. That's prejudice. Here you go. I I, I know it's time and I'll be done just a second. Here here you go. Here's how you're going to know. You ready? I'm I'm drawing the line right here. (laughs) There's a line. You're about to know right now and your heart's going to tell you. Because, see, I'm not always going to be around. Now, by God's grace, I got about 25, 30 years left, okay? So y'all got to put up with me at least that long if everything remains the same, okay? But after that, I'm, I'm probably not, yeah, I'll, anyway. Would Oasis Church be willing to have their next pastor be a man of color? Now, heads are, some heads are nodding, some heads are still because quite frankly, you're going, <laughs> Never thought about that. That's how you know. That's how you know. God, you know, Pastor Kevin said that about a, the next pastor being a man of color. I got to tell you, Lord, my heart went, well, I won't be able to stay there. Did I think that? God forbid. There's your, there's your point of of confession, of repentance. There's where you can start saying, God, I don't want to be that. But then if I can, I need to speak to people of color who have been hurt in the 339 years of our existence. Unforgiveness to real hurts. And you know what I've got? I've got right here some documents from folks folks you know folks that might be present here today where I said, have you ever experienced racism in your life? And they said, I sure have. I sure have. And they've told me. That's added a lot of passion to my talk today because this is real. If I could speak to those who have been hurt, by racism unforgiveness and bitterness can also stand in the way of reconciliation forgiveness never says that what was done was okay never says that what forgiveness does is say God they hurt me but I hurt you you gave yourself for me So I'm going to forgive because I don't want bitterness to become who I am. One of the sweetest things and has played a large part in our talk this morning is a book written by a man named John M. Perkins. Dr. Perkins was one who walked with Martin Luther King Jr. and one who is still fighting for racial reconciliation in the church and in our nation and in our world. And one of the things he said was, we got to be willing to forgive because if we don't, that hurt and that bitterness will lead us up. And can I tell you something? I want Oasis Church to be a place where folks can come and say, I've been hurt by the church. And we can go, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me on behalf of them? I'm sorry that there existed a means for hurt so that forgiveness might be moved toward. I would encourage that every family buy a copy of Dr. Perkins' book, One Blood. It help you. It help you a lot. Regardless of what color, what ethnicity you are it help you here are some of the things that he said as we close as we talk about racism and reconciliation he says if we're going to get there these things have to be true he says first we must accept that there's only one race a human race coursing with one blood if we're going to get there we must lament 
the brokenness of our past. Starts with getting one of those papers right there and on your knees saying, God, we're 85% racial injustice in this nation. Forgive us for something I may not have overtly done in, in the decades and centuries past. But God, forgive us. And be sorry. And see where we continue to glory in our past when there's no glory in it. Dr. Perkins says, if we're going to get there, we must make mutual confessions and forgive one another. In the book, he talks about how that Nelson Mandela came to power after the apartheid government was, was uh, destroyed in South Africa. And that Nelson Mandela could have led a revolution, but you know what he did? He led that nation to confess and forgive. If you have been the brutalizer, we ask that you just come and confess it so that we might turn around and forgive it. If you've never read Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, it's worth the price of the book to get to the last chapter to hear her talk about embracing the guard who brutalized her and her sister in a Nazi concentration camp and embracing him with love and forgiveness that was not hers, but became hers. We need to be marked by confession, by forgiveness. Dr. Perkins says if we're going to get there, we must repent and remain committed to this great work, to this body looking like the kingdom of God and then being a beacon of reconciliation to the world. They're not going to be reconciled to one another. You know that, don't you? Not without Christ. But if we're not reconciled internally, we'll never be able to present to them the Christ who makes unity between the peoples. And then lastly, Dr. Perkins says, if we're going to get there, we must pray that God will defeat the enemies of unity that exist in our body. And that's what we're going to do. So if you'll stand together with us, we'll pray. I know it's been heavy, but you know what? If all we ever push at the gym are lightweights, we don't ever get stronger. We got to push some heavyweights. We got to wrestle with real things that exist in real hearts that we find in ourselves. But when we do, and we respond obediently to the grace that is available, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and prepare us to stand in a world that's still broken. By God's grace, we'll do that. And I hope that's what you want today. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have just to hear truth, to hear what's possible, to hear your desire, and to hear what stands in the way of your plan and purpose of our life being fulfilled in our own hearts. May racism, prejudice, may bias not exist in us. God, where it exists, will you show us so that we can confess it as what it is, and that's sin. God, give us the courage to repent and be sorry for things done years before we were ever born. God, give us the courage to confess. I tried to do that this morning and it was uncomfortable. May more folks at Oasis Church be willing to say, you know what? I'd like to share what I was. Even if what I was was all the way till today. Until I heard what God's word says and I said that don't want to be me no more God may you bring about revival in our hearts as it applies specifically to our relationship with one another God I pray that you would give us the courage to look to make friendships with folks that are of different colors than we are so that we might understand so that we might learn so that we might develop a new norm 
that sees people like you see them. Red, yellow, black, and white. Everyone precious in your sight. God, I pray that your work would be accomplished in this congregation. And I pray that everybody who was not here today will take the chance to listen to the recording. God, may we be a new people that reflect your glory so that others might come to know Christ like we have. For it is in Jesus' name.